Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. There's a great quote from this new book, Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. It goes like this. It's short. We seem to have stumbled backwards into a digital life we didn't sign up for. I think that's a great quote, and it perfectly encapsulates the human situation in the year 2019. As a prior guest on this show has said, we are essentially conducting a global unregulated science experiment. And we have no idea where we're going with this. You know, as we all crook our necks to look into our phone all the time, um, and the consequences are massive in terms of our focus and productivity, in terms of our relationships, our parenting, anxiety and depression. Uh, there's evidence to indicate that that we're seeing record levels of this because of technology, specifically social media, loneliness. So that, that's why I wanted to talk to the aforementioned Cal Newport. He's um, he's really quite impressive. He's a computer science professor at Georgetown University. He does a lot of academic research, but he also writes books about the intersection of technology and and society. He's written six books. Digital Minimalism is the latest. Here's the basic thesis, and this is in, in his words. The, the services delivered through our devices are so alluring and addictive that they can erode the quality of your life and your sense of autonomy. So based on that thesis, he's come up with a whole philosophy called digital minimalism, the centerpiece of which is a 30-day digital declutter, which sounds pretty intense. You basically step away from all quote-unquote, optional technology for 30 days. Optional meaning, um, and you define what's optional, but he wants you to pretty much give most of your digital life up for 30 days and then rebuild from there so you get a sense of what is truly essential. We cover other topics as well, um, including what he calls productivity meditation. We talk about the misery of email and how to get out of it. And on a somewhat unrelated note, I wanted to talk to him about this because I read something he wrote about it. Um, why giving people the advice of follow your passion is wrong. Uh, that's all coming up. Quick notes before we dive in. Uh, if you want to explore this whole idea of what I call tech sanity, there are some resources on the 10% Happier app. In the singles meditation tab, there's a meditation called Facebook Intoxication from my friend and recent podcast guest, uh, Jay Michelson. In the course section, there's a there's a, a video about how using your phone to meditate. It's from Alexis Santos. It's it's in the on the go course. So if you go into the on the go course, look for the the video where he talks about how you can actually hold the phone in your hand and use that as a meditation. It's session number ten. There are also two new talks that are up on this subject in the talks section of our app. By the way, the talks section of the app is new, and I love it. One of the talks is called Tech Sanity, Mindful Phoning. The other is called Tech Sanity, Mindful Speech Online. Tech Sanity is the little kind of catch-all term we use for, as you might imagine, how to stay safe, uh, sane, rather, in the in, in this era of uh, techno-ubiquity. Also, by the way, just uh, related to this episode of the podcast, stick around till the end because there's a uh, special and unusual voicemail this week. Uh, for now, though, here's Cal Newport. Great to meet you. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. I have so many questions. Yeah, I'm excited. So let me let me just start at the beginning. 
How and why did you get interested in the idea of digital minimalism? Well, I'd written a book back in 2016 that was really about the workplace. So I was talking about technology and the workplace and some of the unintended consequences of things like email or Slack. This was deep work? This was deep work. Yeah. So then I'm on the road talking about that book and readers kept coming up to me and saying, okay, maybe I buy this premise about some of these consequences of tech and work, but what about tech and our life outside of work, right? There's something going on there that's distressing. And I kept hearing this drumbeat get louder and louder that there was something going on in terms of people's relationship with their devices outside of work. As I looked deeper into it, I was realizing this is actually growing into like a culture-wide problem. So define the problem for us. I'll pick a quote you uh, from your book. You say, we seem to have stumbled backwards into a digital life we didn't sign up for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, this is the issue, right? So it's not utility. So if you ask someone, why do you feel distressed about your devices in your life? It's not because what they're doing when they look at the screen is in itself bad, right? So in this way, it's different than, let's say, cigarettes or something where the cigarette smoker just says, I just wish I wasn't smoking. I get no benefit. It's not like that. People are getting utility out of their devices. What I was picking up on was concerns about autonomy, that people felt like they were using this more than they wanted to, more than they knew was healthy, more than they knew was useful. They were using this to the exclusion of things that they knew were more meaningful to them. And so at subsets, they felt like I am losing my autonomy here. I'm losing my humanity. And for a lot of people, this was a surprise, right? They bought these phones. They signed up for these services or small reasons or arbitrary reasons. And then they looked up years later and this whole experience had been re-engineered to the point where they're looking at this thing all the time and say, well, I never signed up for this. That wasn't my goal. And I think that's what people have started noticing the last couple of years is that they have somehow become enslaved with these devices in a way that they never intended to be. You mentioned cigarettes. Do you think there's a fair comparison to be made to, between our tech usage and, and smoking? Well, I think there's a, a weak analogy to pull. So I want to talk to psychologists about this. So are we addicted to our phones? I, I wanted an answer to that question. And it's different than what we have with substance addictions, right? So that is different. So like a nicotine addiction or an alcohol or drug addiction is a different type of addiction. But what, what is the relationship we do with, have with our phones? Well, like the relevant term seems to be moderate behavioral addiction which means you'll use it more than you know is healthy or useful if you have it around. But it's not the same strength that will have you, let's say, sneak it out in the middle of the night to try to get into an internet cafe if you lose your phone. So that seems to be where a lot of people are, moderate behavioral addiction. If this thing is around, which it almost always is, I'm probably going to use it more than I should. But the other side of – the other way to look at it would be to look at the supply side. So with cigarettes – there was, there was the user end, and I think very very clearly there's an addiction issue there. But then there, we took a hard look at the, the providers of, yeah. of the cigarettes. Do we need to take a look at a hard look at – do we need to take a hard look at the, at the people who are purveying this technology? We do. We do because this, this whole experience was actually re-engineered, which is, I think is one of the more interesting findings I had researching this book. The way we used to use phones and social media – it's quite different than how we use them today. So, so what changed well, was actually an intentional move on the part of the social media companies to take this experience away from I post things, my friends post things, I sort of check on what they're posting. They moved it away from that experience and towards one where on your phone you have this constant incoming stream of social approval indicators. So this is where we get likes and tags of photos and favorites and the retweets. A lot of this came later – 
in the history of social media, the reason why it was emphasized is that it changed our relationship to these services. So now it's not about I want to say things and I want to see what you have to say. It's about how many likes did I get? And so now you have a reason to keep going back to the phone again and again and again throughout the day because every time you hit the app, there could be more likes. There could be more reactions. There could be more people who tagged you in their photo. And we think that's all just fundamental to the internet. But that was all added and spreaded because what did it do? It got us looking at the phone 10x more times than we were before. So they're tapping into a bottomless well of narcissism. It's psychological vulnerabilities being exploited. And the timing of this makes a lot of sense. It was essentially Facebook was one of the leaders because they're one of the earlier social media companies. Their IPO was looming. And so at some point, you have to shift from just we want to get a lot of users to we have to show revenue. Right, That's the big shift these venture-backed companies go through. And so they went through this re-engineering where they said, now we have to shift our focus from just we want people to use Facebook site up for it. And we actually have to get a lot of data and we have to get a lot of revenue out of our users. And that's where you begin to see this reinvention where uh, it used to be I go on my computer a couple times a week to see like the relationship status of my high school friend. It went from that to 50 minutes a day looking at Facebook products, which is where the – the average American user is today. Couldn't you say what they're doing is just good business, providing us with a service that we clearly like? Well, I mean, it's good business on their side. I mean, Facebook's valuation went up as high as $500 billion, which is crazy. I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a huge valuation. So it's been incredibly successful for them. But for a lot of the users, the reason why they feel like something has been pulled over their eyes is that it shifted on them after they signed up. And that's a big source of distress I pick up today is that people remember signing up for Facebook for one reason 10 years ago. They look up today and they're staring at their phone all the time. And that's not how they originally thought about Facebook. That's not what they signed up to do. And so that's why I say it's not just that we stumbled into this current world, but it's more like the technology companies pushed us when we weren't looking. We signed up and then they changed the rules of the game after that. So do you think there needs to be some sort of government regulation of big tech? So I'm yet to see a proposal for regulation that's really going to get at the core of the problem of people's unease. And actually, I think this is something that's interesting about the coverage right now of social media and people's discontent with it is that the coverage is pretty heavily on issues like privacy or censorship or data portability. These are also the issues, interestingly enough, that the social media companies are willing to engage on. So we have Mark Zuckerberg out there talking about uh, we should have data portability. We should have end-to-end encryption. We should have maybe an independent censor to help us figure out what content should be there. It should not be there. And I think in part, the reason why they're focusing on that is because those are problems that they could solve. But when I'm out there talking to everyday people about their discontent with their phones, they're not talking to me about end-to-end encryption or privacy or, or data portability or the particular regulations for sensory data. They're upset because they're looking at it when they're with their kids, that they're looking at it when they're with their friends, that they're looking at it 150 times a day. It's the addictive compulsive use. It's how they make them feel. It's the subjective experience. This is what's getting people upset. But Mark Zuckerberg can't talk about that because if you if you wind down the sort of addictive nature of social media, that directly gets at your bottom line. Yeah, but can't you say this is individual responsibility? Well, that's why I wrote this book. Right. <laughs> because I think that's ultimately what's going to make the change. I mean, if you're if you're Facebook, for example, it's actually a pretty precarious situation that they're in because it's a free service. That people use, but people aren't actually getting an indispensable value out of it for the most part. So I mean, if you're ExxonMobil selling gas, there's something indispensable about gasoline. It powers your car. You have to have your car to, to run your business or get to work. But something like Facebook, you talk to most people, it's not really indispensable. It's not at the core of any element of their life. It's not a huge hardship if they had to walk away. So they're, they're 
grasp of this massive user base is really kind of precarious. And in fact, I don't think we've ever had a company probably in the history of sort of modern economics that has both been that valuable and also that dispensable mm-hmm. to its users. I don't think we've ever had those two things go together. And so this is why I'm more interested in like what I'm writing about in this book that I am in government regulation because I think you you change the cultural zeitgeist around the role that these technologies need to play in a life well lived and you can have massive transformations in terms of people's relationships with it. We're going to dive deeply into what you re- recommend but would you ask – would you describe yourself as um, anti-tech? Well, I would hope not because I'm a computer scientist. So <laughs> <laughs> I would be pretty lonely in my profession if I was. Uh, and I'm actually a huge internet booster. I mean, I'm one of those guys who was there in the mid-90s hand-coding HTML web pages being hosted on people's servers at the back of their house with the old lines to the internet. I'm, a, I'm an early internet guy. I'm a big internet guy. Your nerd bona fides are strong. Yeah, uh, yes, I have my, my MIT PhD. Come on, that's like – that <laughs> puts me at a, a rare echelon of nerds. <laughs> uh, OK, so so you call the, your process, if, I, if memory serves, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, the digital declutter. Yeah. How does it work? Right. So concretely, the idea is you step away from – optional technology uh, in your personal life. So the stuff that you would be okay not using for 30 days, like social media or, and I hate to say to this building, but maybe online news or <laughs> video games or streaming media, basically. Uh, we'll bleep that part well, out. You'll bleep that part, yeah. The online news part. <laughs> uh, but for 30 days, you step away from all of that. You get a little bit of space from constantly looking at your device. Wait, let me just stop you for a second. Cause, yeah. Cause I, Optional is a big word, and you dive into this deeply. So, so suss that out a little bit. Well, by optional, I mean stepping away from it for 30 days won't cause major trouble, right? So, so for example, uh, if your work requires you to do certain types of social media engagement, you still have to do that engagement for your job. Uh, email, for example, I can't get you out of answering your boss's emails. That's not optional. Or if your daughter text messages you to let you know what she needs to be picked up for practice. Okay, that's not optional. Uh, she's going to be stuck at that school for a month if you step away from it. And so by optional, I mean the things that it wouldn't be that bad. Not that it would be no consequences, but that you could step away from it for 30 days and it wouldn't be that bad. But I'm just thinking about people who, whose bosses email them all the time, and I think there are a lot of people in that bucket. For them, they they feel the need to check their phone all the time as a consequence of the fact that their boss is emailing them all the time or slacking them all the time. So how, how can you c- – how can you get out of this spiral if you're in that situation? Well, the email at work, this is a whole other issue. That's uh, a really important issue. The dynamics are actually a little bit different to the point where I'm actually working on a book now that's tentatively titled A World Without Email. So it's it's a big enough subject that it's actually sort of worthy of its own book. The dynamics that, that lead to this sort of over – this hyper-communication culture within modern knowledge work, which I think, by the way, has been a massive mistake and is part of the reason why – Non-industrial productivity, the economic metric of non-industrial productivity has stagnated for the last decade, even though we've had massive advances in making communication as flexible and convenient uh, as ever before. It's never been so easy in a professional context to communicate with each other, and it hasn't made us more productive. And so there is a bigger issue there. Now, in terms of the digital declutter, like if you have to check your email all the time, you have to check your email all the time. But you still could take a break from social media. You still could take a break from catching up on every latest breaking news. You can still take a break from the games. You can still take a break 
from the binge watching. And there's, there's, there's still going to be advantage to this process to doing that. And by the way, you, uh, one thing you can do is set an alert on the emails from really important people so that you, get, you know, those you get an alert on your phone. So you, you're not just constantly checking it randomly. You know, because you've got an alert that, okay, an important email has just come in. Yeah. Isn't there, there are ways to do this. Well, there's, there's ways to do that. And you could also just try taking it off your phone, right? The sort of, uh, let me accidentally delete the email app off my phone and then apologize. Because there's this really interesting effect with email, and not to diverge too much of the professional space, but there's this really interesting effect where often the cultures of connectivity are not intentional, but are emergent. So there's this really interesting research that Leslie Perlow, a professor at the Harvard Business School, did at the Boston Consulting Group, where she studied what she called the cycle of responsiveness. This idea there's always emails coming in that everyone has to respond quickly. And she she went back to the core and realized that no one ever decided that that was a good idea. Mm. In fact, no one liked it. It was actually emergent. It was this sort of unintentional consequence of these in-the-moment decisions to send emails back. And this culture kind of emerged in an ad hoc fashion and created this culture of responsivity that no one actually wanted. The bosses didn't want it. The people below the bosses, no one, no one actually liked it. Uh, but it just felt like, oh, this is part of the culture. This is what we have to do. And so that's why sometimes people try this experiment of let me prepare to apologize. Mm. And they realize they don't actually have to apologize that much. So it's so interesting, this idea of uh, cultural shifts that were unintended as a, as a consequence of the introduction of new and exciting technology. It feels like email is just one tiny example of that. You can – you can point to dozens of these cultural shifts that, you know, when Steve Jobs took the stage in 2007 and introduced the iPhone, we couldn't have foreseen. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that going on. And, and I think this is really important. So the underlying philosophy, uh, the ph- philosophy of technology that talks about these unintentional consequences is known as technological determinism. So if you actually get into the the formal study of technology's impact on people, there's this notion of technological determinism, which says essentially – Technology could have influences on people and culture that's not intended or planned by the people, right? You could have massive unintentional consequences. And so the famous example of this idea was a book from the 1950s by Lynn White Jr. Uh, I think it was called something like Medieval Technology and Social Change. And he made this argument that the introduction of the horse stirrup to Western Europe in the medieval period accidentally created feudalism. <laughs> right, so there's one, and it had to do with the way that it allowed armored knights to be on horses, and this was an incredibly effective way of doing warfare. But it's actually very hard to support armored knights, and the feudalist economic structure turned out to be very effective. And so this one invention changed the entire economic system of an entire continent. I see these type of effects played out all the time in the modern internet age. So yeah, email comes into a workplace, and a year later, it's completely changed how people work, but no one decided that's the best way to do it. Twitter comes out. Someone discovers, the users discovered retweeting, right? Retweeting was something that was essentially invented by the users. It wasn't a, an original feature. Now you have this unintentional consequence where people want retweet counts to be higher because that hits some sort of primal nerve to see how this thing is spreading. Well, what spreads better? More outrageous content, more extreme content. And you look up, you know, whatever, five years later, and now Twitter is pushing people to extremes on both the left and the right and creating outrage and hate. All sorts of, all sorts of things are completely uh, unplanned, unintentional. Jack Dorsey had no intention that this is what Twitter should be, but it was emergent. And so I think this happens a lot uh, because human beings and human cultures is really complicated, dynamical system, very unpredictable, uh, very complex. And when you put new forces into it, 
especially forces that play with our primal drives for boredom and sociality, for example. It creates these massive nonlinear unpredictable consequences which take the form of our culture veering left and right and up and down in all sorts of ways that you would never plan and with no intention behind them and with no one sitting there and saying this is actually good for us or bad for us, which is why I think we're at a period now where we need to step back from all this exuberance surrounding this sort of mobile internet age and actually get our act together about what do we want to do and what's what's making us worse off than it was before. We have to actually start decluttering what's going on in this digital part of our lives. We have to actually embrace some minimalism. We have to have to get our values front and foremost and then work backwards from that to say, how do I want to put these tools to use? Uh, I, I strongly agree. I think it's incredibly important. And I, you nicely brought us back to the to the point um, after I derailed you so seemingly thoroughly, which is we were talking about the digital declutter, and you said the first step, 30 days, no optional technology. Right. <laughs> We've gone from the digital declutter to uh, Lynn White Jr. and technological determinism. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the mind of Cal Newport. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad place to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So back to the declutter. Uh, you're taking a break from the optional technologies, and you do it for 30 days. And the idea is it's not just a detox. So I don't like the term detox in the context of uh, digital devices. I think it's a bit of a corruption of the original notion of the term of a detox, especially the substance abuse community, where usually a detox is supposed to be the foundation for a substantial positive change to how you live. It's not supposed to be a break. So I think intermingling the word detox with break is sort of a corruption of, of the actual idea. So I don't like the, the, the term detox here. That's why I call it declutter. Uh, so what do you try to do during this 30-day period? Well, it's not just a break. It's where you really start through reflection and experimentation to get back in touch with what do I actually want to do with my time, especially outside of work, and especially if you're young and have always had this constant distraction for every moment of downtime. This is the period to say, what do I actually want to do? What matters to me? What are my values? Let me go experiment with some things. Okay, these are the things I want to get after with the free time I do have so that when the 30 days are over, what you can do is the whole Mary Kondo thing and say, I'm now going to put stuff back in the closet, but only the stuff that I really like. So now you can rebuild this digital life, like what's on your phone and what you're signed up for. You can rebuild this from scratch, but now you can do it with attention and say, I'm only going to add a service back in my life if it really supports one of these things that I decided I really value. So you think there's a healthy dosage of Facebook? Well, it depends on who you are. So are I, you on Facebook? No, you, you're not on social I'm media. I'm not on social media, but I ran 1,600 people. When I was working on the book, I had 1,600 people go through this digital declutter process. And based on the reports I got back, I would say about 50% of them, after they went through this whole thing and figured out what they care about, what their values are, about 50% did add back some social media and about 50% did it. But I will say of the 50% who added back social media, almost none of them kept it on their phone. Because once they had clarity about here's how I could use you know Instagram in a way that's really valuable to me, once they had clarity about the value they're getting out of it, they realized, well, there's no reason for me to check it all the time. And so almost all of them took it off the phone and it became something they check on their computer maybe two or three times a week. I mean that's what I do. I, I We had on here, I guess, I don't know if you would call her a competitor or a co-conspirator of yours, uh, Catherine Price, um, who wrote a book, How to Break Up With Your Phone. Sure. And so she actually got in the weeds with me and and I basically – my my current policy under her tutelage is I will post a picture on Instagram. But in order to do that, I download it to my phone, post it. Delete the app again. Delete the app. 
And same with Twitter. Uh, if I want to post or if I want to check my replies, I will download it and then delete afterwards or I'll just check it on a desktop. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of that going on, right? If you could, if you could uh, unentangle or disentangle yourself from this sort of generic ecosystem of, or I have this very particular reason to use Instagram because I need to post a picture of me with the author I just interviewed. And they want that to pull you to this ecosystem where you say, well, well, uh, Instagram's just a part of my life. And I check it all the time and it's on my phone. If you could break out of that, you could really push this sort of cost to benefit ratio decidedly in your in your advantage. In my book, I use the term the attention resistance to talk about people like Catherine who are really good, really careful about, okay, how do I come in like a surgical strike and get the value I need to get out of these attention economy products and then get out of there under the cover of darkness before they're able to actually grab my mind and have me have me browse at it for the next I, hour. I, I was really struck by that term, the attention resistance. It's like this asymmetrical warfare yeah. where you're actually turning the tables and, uh, and saying, I'm going to derive a bunch of value from these companies um, and these services and, and technologies, but I'm not going to let them use me as, uh, as uh, the product anymore. Yeah, and it, it's really fun to see the high-tech tools that this, this – an informal movement, we could call it, turns against uh, the, the the people that they're striking. So browser plugins are big. So I met a lot of people in this attention resistance that use these browser plugins that allows them, let's say, to go to YouTube because they want to look up a video on how to change the oil in their car, something like this that YouTube's really good for. And the plugin wipes clean the recommendations. So they go to the website, <laughs> they search for what they're looking for, they find it. There's no autoplay, there's no recommendations. Uh, Newsfeed eradicated for Facebook, that's another big tool. So there's a lot of people I met who use Facebook for like Facebook groups. They're a student group uses Facebook groups to organize, so they have to they have to go on Facebook. So they use this newsfeed eradicator plugin. So they go on there, the whole newsfeed is wiped off the screen, and so all they see is you know what is the group meeting this. Where week? do you find how how would one get information on these uh, browser? Uh, you Google them, yeah, yeah, or or I should say, read my book. <laughs> uh, but, but there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of them out there. I even talked about so there's this tethered phone movement is another big one. So people who have a reason to have a smartphone. I mean, everyone has some reasons where they really need a smartphone. I, I need maps in this particular case, or a lot of people use them for fitness. I, I, I learned right there's fitness apps you could put on the iPhone where it tracks your run or something like this. But they don't want the cost of distraction. So there's this whole movement to have tethered phones where you have a simple, essentially dub phone that tethers to your smartphone. And you can bring the, the tethered phone with you. And if someone calls or texts your smartphone, it'll show up on this simple phone you have with you. And if you call somewhere or text someone from it, it'll show up as coming from your number, but there's no apps and no distraction. And so now without having – so that's a, that's a classic high-tech attention resistance type strategy right there. So you don't need two phones with two different numbers. But you only have to have the the fully distracted smartphone with you if you really need it. So okay, so we've gone through the first step, which is this thirty day declutter, right? And you're at the first step of the. I don't know where are we are on the steps. But. I, I kind of jumped to the end of. Oh, you did. <laughs> I jumped to the punchline of thirty day declutter, which is after the thirty days, you rebuild from scratch. And but but there's a, there was a step in in the jumping that I think you you touched on, but is. And maybe it's maybe actually you're about to dive into it, but it it seems big and and worthy of some discussion, which is asking yourself big questions about how you want to live your life and what value do you want to derive from this technology and how do you want to spend your time? Well, that's the key to it. 
And, and, and that was really the big differentiating factor with the 1,600 people who did this. If you want to figure out what most predictably separated those who succeeded with the 30 days and made substantial changes and those who did not, that was the difference. So those who actually took the 30 days to reflect and experiment and really try to understand what do I want to do with my life, what's important, they were much, much more likely to make substantial changes. On the other hand, the people who are just white-knuckling it, like, oh, I'm just, I use Instagram too much. I'm just going to get away from it for 30 days. I don't know. It's just, it's like I'm, I'm detoxing my body from it. They had a really hard time because the forces are so strong pulling you back to these screens that if you don't have a foundation of value, a vision of, I want to do this. This is really important to me. And uh, using tech in that way is not serving this thing that's really important to me. If you don't have that foundation, it just weasels its way back in. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's just, I'm tired of looking at Instagram. Okay, maybe you could you could stay away from it for a while, but then you need to check that one thing, and then it's there, and then you're having a bad day, and then it's a particularly hard day, and next thing you know, it's one or two hours again. You um, you recommend some specific practices um, that I think it's uh, worth discussing that, that I think are worth discussing. One of them is, and I don't know at what phase we we should be engaging with these practices, so I'll let you explain that. But uh, the first of 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 the ones that I've uh, chosen to highlight here is spend time alone. What do you mean by that? It's, aside from the obvious. <laughs> well, solitude. Solitude turns out to be really important. And so by solitude, I mean time alone with your own thoughts. And is this something one should do during the declutter or just all the all, time? All the time. All the time, right. So try, try to understand. So this is part of trying to understand what does a sort of uh, – a, a better, more flourishing life look like in a technological age? And also, why are we feeling so unhappy right now? Like, try to understand both those things. Solitude shows up. And so basically, one of the things that smartphones and ubiquitous wireless internet introduced into the human condition was the ability to banish every last moment where you could be alone with your thoughts. And that's really, really novel. I remember – playing with an iPhone in, in an airport in 2008 or nine, right when my first iPhone. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I'll never be bored again. I'll never be bored again. Yeah. And, and so the, it seems, oh, that's, that's good. But it's also incredibly novel in the, the history of human civilization. We've never, ever been able to banish every moment of being alone with our own thoughts. It used to just be a completely unavoidable part of being a human, that there's mm -hmm. going to be large parts of your day where you weren't processing input from someone else's mind. And so let's use that as the precise definition, right? Solitude means you're not processing something that was created by another mind. And so we've tried in the last five or six years to say, well, what happens if we get rid of every last moment of that? Like as soon as we wake up, any downtime in line in the back of the, the New York City cab, right? That used to be the time where you would see the city, but now you can look at now you can look at the phone. What happens? Or they have TVs. Well, yeah. they have TVs if you don't have your phone, yeah. Um, bad things seem to happen. So, so it turns out we need – time alone with our thoughts. So without it, among other things, we get anxious because the brain is not meant to constantly be processing inputs. And if you if you try to make it do that, you're always processing inputs from other minds. So through social media and the web and breaking news, it overloads it. We get anxious. Uh, we also miss out on important insights. So both personal insights, self-development insights, what am I all about? What's going on in my Life, how am I going to tackle this hard thing? You miss out on these sort of personal insights. You also miss out on professional insights. I mean, it turns out your brain needs freedom from input processing to actually do thinking about these inputs and come up with interesting new ideas. And so we've accidentally stripped all these benefits out of our life. And so now we're unmoored and we're anxious 
and our self-development is stunted. The rate at which we're producing professional insights, that's also stunted. That's diminished. And it's all because of an unintentional consequence of this radical experiment we've tried, which is, hey, what would happen if we got rid of every last minute of solitude? But so I was so interested that you picked – that you honed in on this because I thought the mechanism by which the phone made us anxious, depressed, and in many cases suicidal was that we were having – we weren't having enough genuine eye contact-based human interaction. We were comparing ourselves to other people's curated lives on Instagram. We you know, we're, were social animals who weren't getting our fix. Et cetera, et cetera. But you're saying something that seems to be the opposite. Well, they're both factors, right? So there's a, there's a few different factors of the triangle of, of phone anxiety production. So one is if you get rid of solitude, that makes us anxious. Two, if you start engaging in social stacking, which is replacing face-to-face or analog conversation with the digital equivalent, that makes us feel lonely and isolated. Uh, the three, the social comparison and online bullying, the actual – specifics of the content that we're looking at on these specific platforms, that also could create anxiety. This is where we see the the biggest jump in anxiety is among adolescent girls, social media users. And a lot of that is is not just about banishing solitude, not just about losing face-to-face contact, but very specifically what's happening when they interact on something like Snapchat or Instagram is – that's also psychologically troubling. So it's like a triangle of anxiety (laughs) that the the smartphone has brought into our life. So we need all those elements. We need some time alone. If we don't have any time alone, we get anxious. We also need time with other people. If we don't have real time with other people, uh, we also get anxious. And we also are better off if we don't have this constant stream of social comparison and bullying and, and outrage that comes at us as well. So it's like a perfect storm that's making us unhappy from a lot of directions. Massively self-interested question here. So I'm highlight. I'm, I'm signposting that. Um, what do you think of these companies that co-opt the phone – to get us to have time alone. In other words, guided meditations through your phone. Yeah, it's interesting, right? This is digital wellness in general, I guess, right? Using the phone to help solve some of the issues of the phone. I think there's examples that work and examples that don't. So guided meditation seems to be a space that is working. And in part because what it's doing is leveraging not the ubiquity of the phone or necessarily the internet connection, but just the fact that the phone is a, a a very useful portable computer. And so you could have it, you could download guided meditations. It seems to be working really well with that. Where I get more suspicious with digital wellness, where it's the actual purveyors of the content that are making us unwell in the first place, say, let's also give you tools to help you curate how you use us. So Apple's been doing this. Yeah, Apple's been doing this. So they're in an interesting position because they don't directly profit off of the attention economy. Their device is obviously core to the attention economy, but they don't have a service, for example. But they do now. Well, they're trying to. Yes, because they're going to Apple TV and the subscription news services. They're doing subscription news, right. But they're not doing the attention harvesting like you see with the the major social media companies. And so, I mean, I'm wondering, and I don't know if this is true, that's my, my sort of business speculation, but perhaps one of the reasons why Apple made an aggressive move with like their screen type features is that they do just ad- tell people what those are. Right. Well, it's the features, you know, everyone with an iPhone now gets those reports. Screen time report. Yeah. It's very humbling. You've yes. been using your phone this much. It's up or down this much. Mm-hmm. And it gives you tools to block or control access to apps on the phone. I think in part, one of the reasons why Apple is doing this is because Android can't. 
Android, I mean, the whole point of Android, it was Google saying, we make all of our money off of people's attention. We want to control the operating system through which we're doing this. And we, we, we can't have another company controlling it. So there's something interesting going on there. Hmm. You know, Apple could do it. Android probably can't be so aggressive. So it could be an interesting competitive so advantage. So in some ways it becomes a class issue because Androids are less expensive. Oh, yeah. And so it's the wealthier folks who have the Apple devices and therefore may have access to uh, tools to allow themselves not to be so sucked into this problem in the first place. Oh, indeed. I mean, in general, uh, our attention and autonomy over our attention is becoming a battlefield that is becoming more class segregated. So Matthew Crawford has this interesting book. I believe it's called something like The World Outside of Your Head. That He talks about this not just in the context of foes, but it's this interesting example of traveling on airplanes. And if you're at the airport and you're traveling business class, you're, you're able to be taken away from all these ads and everything that's trying to grab your attention, all the billboards on the wall. And he talks about those ads even in the trays of the security lines. You go to this lounge where there's nothing pulling at your time and attention. And everyone else is left outside, being bombarded left and right with this and that. And things are bright and everything's grabbing at their attention. And that he has this interesting thesis that this is going to be sort of a, a battleground, a valuable battleground is those who are able to actually exert autonomy over their attention are going to have a much different experience of the world than those who can't, especially as we get increasingly more aggressive. When you have a company like Facebook worth $500 billion, which is more than twice of ExxonMobil's valuation or around twice ExxonMobil's valuation, that shows how valuable this resource is that we're now extracting to try to make profit off of. But uh, one can be of any socioeconomic bracket, I would imagine, and do what you're describing here. Yeah, in theory, yes, right? But th- this is some of the, the feedback I've gotten being on the road talking about that, what I th- which I think is interesting, is that you have to have the, the time, space, and energy to say, okay, I'm going to step back. I have enough sort of emotional energy. I have enough – things aren't going – if things are going really, really bad in your life, if things are really hard, you might not have the emotional energy or space, for example, to say, let me just step back and take a break and get in touch with what my values are mm. or what's important to me. Right. There's this interesting split that I hadn't thought about, but I'm, I'm getting this feedback a lot. I think it's interesting is you, you, you have to have the luxury, the, the luxury, but this is true of all self-development, but to have the luxury, the, the space, the emotional energy, the actual schedule space to work on these type of, of self-development is something that is not equally accessible. And the cruel irony is that those folks may, may need it the most. Well, yeah, because this has become – I mean for a lot of people, looking at the screen has become an escape, right? This is how you get – you could avoid having to confront hard things in your life because it's an escape. It's always there. You don't have to confront your own thoughts. You don't have to confront difficulties. There's, there's something here waiting for you to see. An algorithm selected it based off of a data vector built on your behavior to show you something exactly what you want to see. But we know in general that if you get stuck on an escape, be it a phone or be it a pill or be it whatever, as a way of getting away from hardship, that's where you get into a bad mm-hmm. that's where you get into a bad cycle. Yeah. So I mean if, if things are going bad, this is an escape that could help you get away from it. But if you if that's all you're doing, you use it indiscriminately, that can become something that's almost impossible to extricate yourself from. I'm curious about your phone use. I mean, I um I I haven't gone through I haven't gone through your decluttering process, but I went through the process with the aforementioned Catherine Price and I still, you know, first of all, there's been a certain amount of backsliding on my end uh, after having been reasonably, quote unquote, good for a minute. Um, but I, you know, I'm tired. It's a long day. I'm, I'm on a plane. I'm, I don't want to work anymore. I do want to watch a little bit of Netflix. Um, is there a problem with that in your point of view and as, as it pertains to how you manage your own attention? 
Probably not. I mean, for me, it'll probably be baseball. Yeah, there's always baseball rumors to look at. Maybe that's why Netflix. When I'm tired and okay, I get let me let me pull out. Let me look at that. That's not bad in isolation. You know, I think where it becomes problematic is when it becomes the default, and, and that's where people are having trouble with it. Is that the default downtime activity is pull out the phone. So if it's you know me and my wife maybe watch a Netflix show before bed or something, right? That's probably fine. But if it's all I do is look at the phone at every downtime, and now it's taking hours out of my life, hours I should be with my kids or trying to do something, some sort of high-quality leisure activity or trying to develop a skill that's going to be useful, that's when it becomes problematic. And, and so that's why I'm a big proponent of minimalism is that minimalism is not about abstention for the sake of abstention. It's also not about labeling things as good or bad. This is a bad technology. This is a good technology. It's all about just being intentional. And so if you know what's important to you, and you're, you're, you're getting after those things and you're using tech, by the way, to help you get after those things more effectively than what was possible 10 or 15 years ago, which is almost always the case. I mean, tech can give you massive advantages and value-based pursuits. Uh, if you're doing that, then you're fine. And so then maybe, yeah, there's also some distracting uses you do. Maybe there's a little bit of web surfing or this or that. But if you're largely approaching these tools on your own terms, it's a huge boon. If you're not, and you're allowing the tools just to sort of take away the boredom, let the tools take away the hardship, let the tools become the default, that's what becomes problematic. Point well taken. Let me go back to some of the, the practices you recommend. Another is take long walks. Um, and you've described this as, and this is my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, as your meditation practice because you don't have what we, I think we would describe as a formal meditation practice. Right. So I have this practice that uh, mindfulness meditation practitioners get mad at me for calling it meditation. So my, my apologies in advance, but – Definitely not mad at you. It may be inaccurate, but it's – Yeah. Well, it, it's an, it's certainly an accurate use of the word meditation, but it's been effective for me. So I call it productive meditation. And what you actually do in this practice is you go for a walk and you take a single professional problem. So this is where I'm going to corrupt – everything that's good about <laughs> meditation. No, well, let me just stop you for a second. I mean, the, the, the original um, term, if I am, and I, I hope I'm right about this, but I think I am, uh, in, ancient, in the ancient Indian language of Pali, I believe, is bhavana. And, and it really, the, 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 the translation there is cultivation. Yeah. And so meditation is a set of, as I understand it, is that you're cultivating a set of inner skills. And so I can see how what you're describing, what you're about to describe would be a sort of cultivation. You're not cultivating mindfulness per se, yep. but you are cultivating a sort of focus, a set of priorities, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so, so what I do with this practice is I, I get a professional problem. So maybe I'm working on a chapter in a book. I'm trying to figure out how do I want to structure this or a math proof. I'm a theoretical computer scientist. That's my day job. I solve a lot of math proof. So maybe I'm trying to solve a proof. You go for a walk. You try to make progress on the problem just in your head. And then what I borrowed from mindfulness meditation is that when your attention wanders from the problem onto something else, which it inevitably does, you notice that and you try to bring it back to the problem. And then it, it wanders to some email you, you're supposed to write. You notice that you you bring it back to the problem. Now, when I originally introduced this practice, it was for like, an intentionally pragmatic purpose, which is if you do this type of uh, productive meditation. One of the big impacts of it is your ability to concentrate really skyrockets. Mm. It's it's like doing calisthenics for your cognitive performance. You do this. I, I did this pretty heavily 
during my postdoctoral fellowship years when I was preparing to be a professor. I would do a few miles every day. And your ability to concentrate, if you do keep bringing your mind back to the problem and then push deeper, your attention wanders. You bring it back to the problem. You hold the variables in your head. You try to keep them there. You try to push deeper. But this is an N of one, right? I mean, this is you just your only. Well, at first it was, right? Yeah. So then I wrote about this at Deep Work. And so I wrote about, and, and there is incredibly pragmatic. It was, here's how you get better at concentrating because the whole point of that book is that concentration is like a superpower. We're undervaluing it. Train yourself to concentrate. You'll have a huge advantage. And so I did this. I had a huge effect. Uh, I put in this book. Now, lots of people do it. And they're also having that effect. But then there's this common side effect that I that I felt and lots of other people felt, which is some of the side effects that people get from more traditional meditation practices. And so even though it wasn't pure mindfulness where you're actually trying to have non-attachment to any thoughts, here you're actually thinking about a particular thing. But something about focusing your attention on something really hard and practicing noticing and not following the ancillary thoughts was giving people a sense of anxiety reduction, was giving them a, a sense of calmness that that uh, persisted even after they were doing the practice. And so I don't know. Maybe it's just sort of like capitalist corruption of, no. of the – but uh, I, I buy it. I but, buy it. I, I, I don't. I, I buy it. I mean, you're you're essentially cutting down on the what is is in my understanding a a major, if not the major, source of our anxiety, which is the wandering mind, which tends to lead to sort of catastrophizing and yes. comparing and all that stuff. And you're actually focused on a wholesome issue. Yeah, and, and so one of the things I found when I was working on that book is that craftsmen. So people who are still professional craftsmen. So I, I spent some time writing about a blacksmith who make swords, it's about as old-fashioned as you can get, using traditional methods, seem to be less anxious mm. than everyone else. And so it, the, the argument I made in that book is that there's something about when you focus your attention on one thing and it's meaningful and it's hard and it requires skill and you're completely wrapped in that activity is something that we're wired for. It's calming. It's anxiety-reducing or probably the way to put it uh, let's invert that. That's more what we're used to doing as a species. And so when you don't do that, but you instead have to check the email inbox and then jump to social media, then back to the inbox and then check breaking news and then back to the inbox and over to social media. When you're having to bounce all around like that, that's the really unnatural state, which is causing this background hoe of anxiety. And so productive meditation at least helps you get you back temporarily to that old craftsman state. But it also means when it comes time to work later, when you're not doing the practice, but you're just at your computer screen trying to write a story. You're able to concentrate longer. You feel less distracted. And when you cut down from this constant frenetic context switching, we feel better about it. But that has to be practiced. I totally buy it. Um, why, out of curiosity, have you not embraced a, tra a more traditional meditation practice? I've done it off and on. So I've, I've done traditional mindfulness meditation. I've, I've had a practice off and on, not recently. Uh, I use John Kabat-Zinn. Some of his guided meditations. He's a giant. Yes. Yeah. Also uh, MIT. So I, I suspect you like the pedigree there. We do. Yes. Us New England types uh, <laughs> connect together. Uh, well, you, you could probably convince me that I should probably have it back. I would say it's it probably kids in time. Like the, the standard excuses, right? That everyone yeah. always gives. I'm not in the business of convincing. Um, I, was that, I wasn't asking that question as a way to sort of put the camel's nose under the tent to try to, you know, get into um, um, lecturing you. I was just more curious. It sounds like, and it sounds like, first of all, it sounds to my ears like a completely legit answer. You're a man with a two 
four and ten year olds, something like that. Uh, that'd be easier. A one, one, four, and six. Okay, one, four, and six. <laughs> uh, so, oh man. Okay, one, four, and six. So, and you're writing. You've written a, like a ridiculous number of books, and you have a, a very, very busy day job. I get it. Time is a is as you know, it's a really finite resource. I I would say I'm definitely not wagging my finger at you. I would say you might want to explore, you know, one to five minute meditations in a slot that is currently unoccupied that, yep. that would fit nicely into your current schedule. Yeah. But you're in the fat you're in the sort of rush hour right now of life and um I have a hard time I, I have a hard time getting on a high horse and telling you you're a failure if you're if you're not meditating. Yeah, though I think I'm an easy sell. You know you know what the the example that's caught my attention recently is Yuval Harari, the author sure. and uh, professor, mm-hmm. he has a two-hour daily practice. Yeah, I did for a while too. Yeah, two-hour day. Yeah, and and it has not. What it has not done is blunted his impact as a thinker. Does he have kids? I don't know if he has kids. Yeah. Well, he also does a two-month annual retreat, uh, which leads me to believe that, that yes. maybe he doesn't. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but I mean, the point is, it didn't blunt his impact as an influential thinker. I no. Think, I think what a two-hour practice blunts is your ability to be. Overly booked or, or or busy all the time, but that's probably just better. Well, so I was doing it, and I was overly booked. Yeah, and it was actually that's hard. it was it was so I cut down to one hour, which is also which actually seems ridiculously easy now because I was doing two hours for three years. Yeah. But um, I'm also simultaneously working on being overbooked and working on my technology use and working on the fact that having so many cognitive demands was making me less happy and therefore yeah. less pleasant to be around. Um, in terms of you being an easy sell, I would say the the thing I would recommend for you to investigate is shorter meditations. Yep. Well, do you find, I'm just curious, because you have this practice, you do it at least an hour every day. When you're dealing with technology issues like the allure of a phone, is it easier for you than other people you know? Just because it's easier for you to kind of notice the a feeling of compulsion mm-hmm. and not necessarily have to attach to it. I mean, mm-hmm. it feels like any other thought mm-hmm. you have. 10% easier. 10%. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I notice, I do notice like my arm moving like a zombie toward yeah. my pocket to retrieve the phone. And often the zombie wins. Um, but sometimes I'm like, what am, what am I doing right now? Especially sort of in the immediate afterglow of my work with Catherine. And I suspect it will happen, you know, for the next couple of weeks after having sat with you. Yeah. Um, I will be a little bit more attuned to it. But, you know, one of the initial translations of the word mindfulness is recollection, remembering. We are programmed for denial and forgetting and for and for not only forgetting but also for getting uh, stuff. And we are, um, you know, it's very easy to forget these uh the, these important lessons that somebody like you can come along and impart. So I am more or less good at times, um, but I do suspect that my baseline ability to notice my urge and not be owned by it is vastly higher than sort of the average untrained mind. Yep. That may or, what I just said may or may not be true, but what I can say that is 100% true is that my baseline ability to do it now is vastly better than my baseline ability to do it before I started to meditate. That's interesting. Well, well, 10% can be very high leverage Definitely. with this type of behavior. There's this experiment I did years ago. It was more surrounding the, the last book where for whatever reason, I, I had a lot of people take Facebook off of their phone at a time when Facebook use was really big before Instagram was as big. I talked to a lot of people who are very serious Facebook users at the time. And they said, look, I, I got to use Facebook. I can't leave Facebook. It's incredibly important. They said, that's fine. Just take it off your phone. Do an experiment for a month. Just access it on your computer. 
And they were convinced like, okay, I'm going to be on my computer all the time using Facebook because it's really crucial to what I do. That such a huge fraction of these people never touched it once <laughs> during the experiment. So that, that 10% of friction mm-hmm. of, oh, I got to, I got to load up a browser and type in facebook.com. The 10% of friction was enough for them to go from constant checking to almost not checking at all. So 10% can make a difference with this stuff because a lot of it is automatic. I'll tell you another thing that made a huge difference for me was having a specific bed for the phone in my house. So my rule, and this thing I have not broken since Catherine literally came to my house, was my rule is when I'm at home, almost always, I mean, there are a few minor exceptions to this, um, the the phone is in my bedroom closet. That's where the charger is now. Yep. And so my son does not see me on the phone much as a consequence. And yep. He's four. Um, and that has been a huge plus for me. I turn the ringer on if there's an emergency. And, uh, I hear the phone ring. And if I need to take a call for any reason, I'll go in the bedroom and take that call. Or if I have the compulsion to check, I have a 40% pr- friction because I got to go stand awkwardly in my closet to go check my phone. Yeah. Um, and I found that to be really useful. I'm not just walking around with the thing all the time. Yeah. Well, th- this is actually a common idea that I came across after the book came out. So I was talking to a lot of parents about how do you deal with your kids and phone use and, and try to get them not to use the phone as much. And this idea that some people call it the phone foyer method because they keep it in the foyer. Mm-hmm. When you first walk in the house, it goes mm-hmm. you know next to the front door. This is really common among parents for exactly this reason. It's still there. You can still hear a call if you have the ringer out or if you need to look something up, you can go look it up. But it's not with you as a companion in the house. And a lot of parents are using this to great success because it means their kids don't see them using the phone as a companion. Because it's really hard to give this message to your kids. So you shouldn't be on the phone all the time if that's what they see. I've never once had my son say to me, Daddy, get off the phone. That's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I am really grateful for that. Really grateful for that. I fall down all the time in lots of ways as a parent and as a human. But that avoiding that pitfall so far has been really awesome. I think it's really important. I mean, I accidentally implement that because I lose my phone all the time. <laughs> I don't use it very much. But it is, a form, it is a formal idea. You really don't use your phone that much. I don't use it that much. What what does your phone usage look like? I mean, it's in theory. My my wife made me get a smartphone when our first kid was born because she needed to be able to text me or send me photos of the kids. So in theory, my phone usage is built around my wife can text me, and when I get lost, which I always do because I, I don't think I need directions, but I do. So I get lost. I can find the map to figure out where I'm going. So like in theory, that's what I use it for. But I miss most of the text messages anyways because I'm bad about having my phone, and so my family just kind of knows this. What about email? No, I had Gmail on there, uh, and a while ago, I accidentally deleted it, and it changed my life. How do you deal with email? Like, wh- when do you deal answer your emails? Well, it depends. I mean, I could maybe see my, my publicist in the other room shaking her head. No, it depends. It can take me a while sometimes, right? Because, I mean, so for me, uh, and I have the luxury to do this because I'm a professor, and I'm a writer, but it depends what I'm doing. And so if I have a day of writing or working on a math proof or something, I might not look at email that day. And then maybe another day I will look at email. So it could be a day or so before I see things. And like people do get mad at me quite a bit, but it's not. They can always call you. They can always call me. And they do. And they've learned how to do it when there's emergencies. So and that, that works pretty well. Uh, but I care a lot about my time and attention. Essentially, like I feel that I make a living off of transforming time and attention into things like books and proofs that 
I could get paid for. So I care a lot about uninterrupted thought and concentration. And so I go long periods without my phone um, or if I have it with me, it's not on. And when I do a lot of media, I end up putting it into these modes where it can't ring and do all these things. But I don't know how to turn off those modes. So then like some days will go by and I don't get any calls from, from my family. Well, I could see how your wife being able to, unable to reach you in an emergency would be bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when she calls, that's what I know. <laughs> but if you turned your phone off, then she yeah, can't. Yeah, it happens sometimes. But on the other hand, this used to be our life. Yes, it what, did. Like 10 years it ago? Yes. Yeah. We were, we were thinking about that now when we were going out with the well, – we used to – our parents would go out and there would be a babysitter. You would give them like the neighbor's number. It's like, hey, you can't reach us. We're going out. We're going to be in a movie theater. you know. And it was okay. You know, We ended up okay. And, and so I try to do my best to be accessible. I definitely want to hear from my family when they try to reach me. Uh, I fail at it a lot. But it hasn't been that big of a deal. And you said before your your most common mindless use of it would be if, you know, you're at the end of the day, you're frazzled, you don't want to think anymore, you might check baseball rumors. Yeah. So my rule is this is what I do when I eat lunch. So I, I've, I've consolidated it. So I'm usually tired by midday, especially if it's a day when I'm teaching. So I give myself 20 minutes while I'm eating lunch at Georgetown, baseball rumors. Like that, that's I'm tired. I'm going to look at these particularly because I don't want to think because I've just been thinking a lot and then I have to go think a lot more. And so – I've consolidated it into that into that period. More 10% happier after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch plan savings with t-mobile third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans the weather is getting warmer time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier.
I have. I still have a lot of questions I want to ask you, but I'm, we're talking about email for a second, and I know you. This is this you mentioned earlier. This is the subject of your next book. Yeah, but I'm thinking about email a lot, not only in terms of. Do you mind talking about the, the subject of your oh, next sure. book? Okay. I do. Yeah, um, I'm thinking about email a lot, but not only personally in terms of my consumption of it and how it is. That's the thing when I'm. Is it mindless? I don't know. I, I'm just very. I'm obsessed with inbox zero. I want to just get down. I want to deal with all these emails. So I find that when I'm waiting for elevators, when I'm having a mindless yep. moment of checking in, it's I'm going right to email uh, because I just have so much of it that I need to deal with. Um, so that strikes me as not super healthy, A. And then B, you know, now I'm in a, for the first time in my life, really in a kind of leadership position within a company uh, because I work here at ABC News, but I also have a company called 10% Happier, which is a meditation app. Um, and I want to think of ways healthy ways to communicate with the employees and my co-founders and all that stuff in a way that if I send an email at four o'clock on a Sunday morning, because I'm awake, because I'm going to work, because I work early on Sunday mornings, they don't feel like they need to respond to that. It's, it's just that I had the thought at that moment. So what's the right way to communicate in all of this? What's the right way to manage your own email? And what's the right way to communicate within a healthy organization are the things on my mind. So I'm just curious if that triggers any thoughts for you. Well, yeah, there's a lot, there's a book, a book's worth of thoughts <laughs> because this is what's different about email, let's say, social media. When it comes to like an unhealthy relationship with social media, that's almost entirely on you and you could stop doing it, right? You could step away from Instagram and your life might be better and it's fine. But maybe some friends will be upset you're not on there, but it's okay. Email, if you say, ah, oh, I, I hate how much I check email, I'm going to stop checking it. I know for personal experience, that's not going to work. Because people need you and your boss needs you and someone underneath needs you and something gets dropped. And so I think the issue with email is not the tool itself. It's the underlying approach to work that it secretly brought in through the back door, right? And so what we've done when email came along, it changed the way we worked without anyone's consent and without anyone's planning. It was one of these unpredictable emergent changes like the horse stirrup leading to feudalism type of situations. And what I think happens when email came in and gave us low friction very easy communication ability is that what we did was we took our natural instinct about how we should coordinate. The way that we used to coordinate when there was groups of three of us on the Savannah, we were hunting a mastodon, which is ad hoc and unstructured. Hey, you go that way. I'll go this way. Hey, did you see that saber-toothed tiger coming from over there? It was unstructured ad hoc. The way that we're instinctually used to coordinate in small tribes, and we tried to scale it up to whole organizations. We said we could have this ongoing, unstructured conversation through low-friction low digital communication, be it email or something like Slack. And so we tried to scale up this instinct we had of let's just have this ongoing conversation and figure things out on the fly. Now, the thing about that is it's, it's very flexible and it's very easy. So it makes sense why it's spread. It's a very flexible, adaptive, and easy way to, to organize an organization. But on the other hand, it turns out to directly conflict with how our brain works. Because in order to take this sort of tribal conversation and have it happen at the large scale, you have to constantly be tending the conversation. So you have to constantly be tending the inbox or the Slack channels. And what happens is when you have to constantly tend these channels is you always have to context switch. Mm. So I'm working on this. I have to switch, look at the inbox, mm. back yeah. to this switch. Huge problem for me. And we know from psychology that context switching has a huge price. So even if you think you're single tasking, if you do these quick checks of an email inbox, there's a huge cognitive price that's paid from doing the context switch to the inbox, even if you only looked at it for a minute. Now, that reduces our cognitive capacity. It burns us out. And then the other issue is that when we see an email in an inbox, the social, the primal social aspect of our brain sees that as a huge obligation. Yes. 
it's like they're somewhat across from the fire and they're tapping you on the shoulder. And if you mm-hmm. ignore them, you're going to get a spear in the back. Mm-hmm. And so we feel this social anxiety. Uh, all these in- inboxes and those emails are in here. Our brain can't say this is not that important. This is – we see it as, as people around the fire. and They're mad that we're not looking at them and the, the rock spear is going to come through the back. And so it's a huge mismatch with our neuronal hardware this particular way of working. And so long answer to a short question, but what I think has to happen is we have to rethink from the ground up how we actually work and knowledge work. And until you replace this idea that we just have unstructured ad hoc communication all day with something that's more structured and more in line with the way our brain actually works, I think it's very hard to get away from having to do this all the time. There's only so much that personal habits can change. There's only so much that tips and tricks are going to get us. So what would this new world look like? Well, so I've been trying to find organizations that do things differently what are the places where you see innovation in software development? Because they're still pretty close to the industrial world. Even though they're producing a knowledge product, it's software. Um, it's still a knowledge work type organization, but they bring in a lot of ideas from industrial manufacturing. And you'll see in some software development shops, for example, agile methodologies, where now tasks are kept in a public place where everyone knows who's working on what and what stage it's at. And coordination is secretized. Twice a day, it's three times a day. The meetings are usually standing up, so they can't go too long, and they're very focused. We, we do this at 10% Happier. We have stand-ups. Stand-up meetings. Yes. Yeah, that's where it came out of, is Agile, right? And so now, who's working on what is not in inboxes, and the coordination is not ad hoc. It's every few hours. You stand up, secretist. Who's working on what? Who needs what from whom? What happened to the commitments you made last time? And that gets people out of inboxes. And so I think ideas like that are going to mutate and spread and adapt you have to adapt to different industries. But I think we're going to see a huge change in the next, I don't know, 10 or 15 years that's going to get us away from unstructured ad hoc communication and towards much more structured ways of passing around information obligations that allows human brains to actually produce much closer to their actual capacity. What would your advice be, advice be in the meantime for those of us who are dealing with you know, a nonstop avalanche of emails? So you, in the meantime, what you can do personally is try to batch more. Uh, think about context switching as being a, a huge cognitive price to pay. And so when you try to do something that requires concentration, do that thing that requires concentration. Shut your browser down. Completely. I mean, Qu- shut your, sorry, shut your, shut your inbox down. Quick checks could be just as damaging to your cognitive performance yeah. as, as multitasking. Yeah. And so you have to start thinking that way. If I'm working on something hard, I want to work only on that thing. And every time I, I glance at an inbox, it's it's like you're taking a drug that's going to make you dumber for the next 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, man. I'm I'm taking that drug a lot. And, you know, I'm trying to write a book, and it's killing me. And so I got to stop doing that. Yeah. 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 Well, our whole I, I think the whole economy is. I mean, look at the, the, the metric I mentioned before of productivity and take out the industrial sector. That's been stagnant. There's a lot of reasons why it might have been stagnant for the last 10 years, but we had this massive investment to make communication as flexible and fast as possible. And it hasn't made us more productive in the actual economic sense of how much output is produced yeah. per hour of work. Yeah. yeah. Never mind how happy we are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We also happen to be miserable. Too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm at a moment where I'm sensitive to your time. I have a long list of questions and I'm definitely not going to get to let me let me just pick a few and see if we can click through them. Um, you, you mentioned before something like high quality leisure, which would give us a sense as also low quality leisure. Can you talk about the difference there and why thinking about this strategically is so important? Well, it, it seems that humans really crave 
doing leisure activities that have quality just intrinsically, that we do it just because we really enjoy the activity. And especially if it requires some sort of skill that we've developed or some appreciation that we've cultivated. So you learn how to cook and you're making a nice meal or there's a sport you play and you're pretty good at it and you can play the pickup basketball game. We get a lot of satisfaction out of that and we crave it. So this has been one of the casualties of on-demand, low-quality distraction through the phone is that we do a lot less of it. But you seem to be recommending, if I've got it right, that we really think strategically about, especially for people who maybe have grown up as digital natives, about what is the leisure, what are these high-quality leisure skills we want to develop, arts and crafts, et cetera, et cetera, and start to think about it, you know, how much time am I going to dedicate, et cetera, et cetera. Am I reading you correctly on yeah, that? Yeah, well, especially for young people. So, so people who are old enough to remember adult life before ubiquitous mobile internet it's like a rediscovery process. Like, oh, here's the things I used to do, and they get back to them. But if you're 23 years old, there is no use to, right? You've probably just filled every moment of downtime looking at algorithmically optimized content. And so there is an actual process, and that's why I have to get into it in the book. And it seems a little, I don't know, pedantic, I guess, what I actually get into for those readers in mind. How do you actually sit back and figure out this is what I want to do with my time. I'm going to pick up this skill. I'm going to learn to play the guitar. I'm going to read this many books or, or, or whatever it happens to be. But actually sitting there and thinking, what do I want to do? This is one of the reasons why I put aside 30 days for that declutter process as opposed to just saying, let's do this over the weekend. Is that for a lot of people, they need that much time just to figure out what they want to do, like what's actually important to them. They actually have to get out there and you know buy the guitar and take a few lessons. Or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, in some in some ways, this this declutter is, and I mean this differently than you mean it. Deep work. Uh, it is truly deep work. Uh, yeah. You are looking at what is matters to you. Yeah. In your what kind of life do you want to live? Yeah. And yeah. This, so this seemingly kind of superficial thing of like how you're going to manage your relationship to technology is actually like how do you want to live? Right. Well, it could be terrified too. I got that report a lot for people who said day one with the phone empty was terrified because for the first time, it's like you're looking into the existential void. Yeah. OK, what is it I actually want to do? I just published an article recently talking about how I was surprised to see the pickup of this book in religious communities. Mm. But when I dive deeper and read these articles, it's because core to almost all religions is this notion of the contemplative life, that turning inwards is where you have revelation and clarity and courage and, and sort of exploring the interior space is just crucial to developing, to getting intimations of the divine, transcendence. It all requires quiet interiority. And so suddenly we introduce this device that banishes all of it. And so religious communities are seeing this problem. They're looking at their fellow adherents and – and they're stumbling around and they're anxious and they're unmoored. And it's because we, we took for granted you know, the importance of, of having this space. And so, yeah, this 30 days, uh, it's deep work. But you got a lot that you need to do when you get to those 30 days. I mean you're really trying to get to the core of yourself, which is why for a book that's kind of about technology, it's sort of surprising how much of this book is really not about technology. Yeah. Um, here's my last question. It's kind of unrelated to – a lot of the things – well, maybe – no, actually, maybe it is related. Um, I was struck in just sort of looking over the, the quite vast body of work that you've created um, in not that long a period of time that one of the th one of the points you've made publicly runs counter to something that I've been saying for a long time, which is 
uh, when young people come to me and say, what should I do with my life? I often say, well, think about the thing you would pay to do and see if you can get paid to do it. Um, like, in other words, follow your passion. Uh-oh. And you say that's terrible advice. And, I, and you make a really good argument. And I'm, I'm, in, I'm compelled. So I'd love for you to sort of uh, say it here. Yeah. Well, I, I wrote a whole book about it back in 2012. So good they can't ignore you. So the, the premise of that book is I went back to try to understand how do people end up loving their work. And the idea that you should follow your passion is really prevalent out there, but it doesn't really match the research literature or my own research on how people end up in jobs that they really love. And so there's two issues. One is it assumes that people, especially young people, have this preexisting passion that they can clearly identify and use as the foundation of job choices, whatever current configuration our current economy happens to be in, right? We don't have a lot of evidence that most people have clearly identifiable preexisting passions. So right off the bat, when you say, hey, just follow your passion, now they're really adrift because what are they supposed Mm -hmm. to do? Second, we don't have a lot of evidence that the match of your work to pre-existing inclinations is a significant source of motivation, meaning, or satisfaction. It seems self-evident. Like, well, if I like this thing and then I do it for my work, then I should like my work. But we don't have a lot of evidence Mm -hmm. that that's true. We actually have evidence that we could have the the contrapositive be true, which is – I'm an amateur photographer. I love it. I become a professional photographer. I hate it. Yeah. That's pretty common. So what we also have a lot of evidence for other things that do seem to matter. So things like having autonomy over your work, what you work on, how you work on, that makes a lot of difference. Impact matters. Am I doing something that, that really is having an impact on the world? Mastery matters. Just the sense of I'm getting better at a skill that people value, connection matters. Am I connecting to other people? Am I building strong relationships? And none of this has to do with – matching a pre-existing inclination to a job. And so the formula I ended up talking about in that book, the formula that came up often when I study people who love what they do is that they usually started by building up rare and valuable skills. Mm. They, they, they get good at something that's unambiguously valuable, not something random. I mean, something that seems interesting to them. So it's not completely disconnected it's, from it's their inclination. It's not disconnected, but you're lowering the bar from passion. You have a one true passion. Yeah, and if yeah. you miss that target, you're going to be miserable. You're lowering it down to there's many things which are interesting to you that you're probably well suited to pursue. All of those could be the source of passion. That's not what – so make the choice. The choice is not that hard. Well, so we all have interests. We may not all have passions, but it seems what you're saying is if you follow a stri- with with some strategy, if you follow an interest with some strategy like – based on, you know, autonomy, connection, mastery, et cetera, you can develop a passion. You develop passion. So passion follows. And almost always what passion follows is becoming so good you can't be ignored. <laughs> so that's where the title – the book is actually a Steve Martin quote. That was his advice to young entertainers is be so good they can't ignore you. But – but okay. So but two, two things. One is there are people with preexisting passions. Yeah. So, for example, stand-up comedy. Um, there are people who are just – you know, Judd Apatow is super passionate about that. Did, you know, did his 10,000 hours and like has done well, um, very well. Uh, so you can that, – that's just one point I want to make. Might you agree with me on that? I Well, I, I do. I mean I do agree that there are people who do have strong preexisting passions and they follow it. But I also think there's a much broader circle of people who are passionate about what they do. And when they self-report the advice, they say, well, you should follow your passion. But if you actually unpack it, it turns out to be more complicated. And so like John Apatow maybe – I mean his his original relationship with stand-up comedy was a little bit conflicted. So it might not have been a, a strong passion. I talk about Steve Jobs in that book where he's often seen as this, this exemplar following your passion. But you 
unpack his story. And I went back and interviewed people that like the, the guy who bought his original Apple One circuit boards at the Byte Shop in Mountain View. Early Steve Jobs had no idea that he wanted to be a technology entrepreneur. He stumbled into it and then it ended up becoming the source of passion. So there are people who are passionate in advance. There's also a lot of people who I think sort of incorrectly, retroactively ascribe their current passion yeah. to to something – to an axiom like I followed my passion. I, I'm trying to figure out if that's the case with me. So I mean I was in college intrigued by television news. I thought it looked cool. I didn't really know much about it even though I did a bunch of internships. I can think my understanding was pretty surface. I mean, I, I just I thought it was cool and yep. exciting and interesting, and I was no good at math and couldn't be a, a scientist like my parents. So I then got into TV news, and it was awesome. And I I, I don't know if the pa- where the passion happened, but it definitely happened. Yep. And then I got interested in meditation ten years ago uh, or eight nine years ago, and I thought, okay, I should write a book about this because I think I might have some a way to say this that would be different from, from others. Isn't that another example? of following my passion or is it what am I have I just done what you described which is I followed an incipient interest yes. and it became passion it became passion as you as you got good at it and as you did it well <laughs> right, right? Right, right and so like the theory would say if we go back to college age dad Harris there might actually have been a dozen different paths you could have taken all of which could have led you really loving what you do so it's really lowering the stakes on the choice like choose something that's interesting and it seems like it has a lot of options. You're well suited for it, but don't sweat the choice. Instead, sweat the hard work of becoming really good because what tends to happen – this is the theory I uncovered in that book – is that as you get better at things, well, first of all, you get a sense of, of passion just from the mastery. But more importantly, skill is what leads to leverage. And when you have leverage over your work, you're able to use this – I call it career capital the, the book. You're able to invest this career capital and start shaping your career in these subtle ways towards things that resonate away from things that don't. And it's like the currency. Skill is the currency on which people construct remarkable careers. You've been a great guest. I've learned a ton. I'm so glad to meet you and be able to ask you all of these – well, not all of these questions, but most of these questions. Final final question, uh, which will be self-serving for you, which is um, please step into what we call the plug zone. Can you just plug all of your books – where we cannot find you on social media because you don't exist there, but maybe you have a, and you do have a website. Yeah. Can you give us everything, uh, all the mechanisms, all the modalities by which we can reach you? Yeah, I think ironically, my phone is rigged. It may be my phone. <laughs> is that my phone or no, your phone? That's your phone. That's your. I, I feel less I, guilty. I don't think I silenced it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did silence it. That was vibrating. That was vibrating. But yes. see, see, I don't know the difference. Like, how do you I, make it not? <laughs> I think putting it on stun is like because uh, I I never turn my phone off because if there's truly a breaking news emergency or my child yeah. has broken a bone, I want to know right now. Yeah. Um. So I don't think that was a huge party foul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's all ironic, though, given what I talk yes. about. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> all right, so where, so where do you find me? Uh, you're right, not on social media. I've never had a social media account, which turns out it's allowed. Uh, but I do have a website, calnewport.com, and I'm a big blogging nerd. I'm a big believer that's a cool use of the internet. I've been blogging there for over a decade. And so if you want to find out more about the the weird and esoteric Mind of Cal Newport. There, there's a lot to read there. And the books? So Digital Minimalism is my new book that, that really gets at a lot of what we're talking about. I wrote five others, and you can, you can find out about those at calnewport.com as well. Deep Work, So Good They Can't Ignore You, The Zen Valedictorian. All right, so there's three books for students that I wrote as a student. Uh, How to Win a College, wrote as an undergraduate. How to Become a Straight-A Student, wrote in my first year of grad school. And How to Become a High School Superstar, which was like uh, – 
a zany Malcolm Gladwell meets A for Admission style book where I went out and found all these kids who were really interested in really low stress and yet were still doing well in, in college admission. So maybe it's relevant today. Uh, and I would say, hey, look at this example. It's possibly like a normal, interesting person and still go through college admissions without becoming stressed out. And then so good they can't ignore you, deep work, and more, most recently, digital minimalism. Thank you, sir. This is great. Thank you. Okay, that was Cal Newport. That was a great conversation. Really appreciate him coming on. Um, time for the voicemails. Actually, it should be voicemail singular this week because, we're, as as mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a special one. I got a tweet recently from some sixth graders uh, from Prairie Waters Elementary School in Alberta, Canada. Every year, the sixth graders there get to do a big nine-week project. Uh, the names uh, of the girls who reached out to me were Angela Aya and Anu, and they're doing a project about minimalism. And um, they want they sent me a tweet. They wanted me to answer some questions, or they wanted to call me up and ask me some questions. And I said, you know what? Call the voicemail line, and I'll answer the questions for everybody. So here's their voicemail. Dear Mr. Harris, our names are Aya, Anu, Angela. We are working on a project called Exhibition, where we research a certain topic, we choose minimalism as a topic. Question one, how does minimalism affect your life? Two, what is the easiest part of minimalism? Three, what is the hardest part of minimalism? Four, why is it so important? Five, how does minimalism affect your stress? How does minimalism affect you and your family? Would you consider yourself as a minimalist? Why? Why are you interested in minimalism? Nine, does minimalism make you more independent? Ten, how did you discover minimalism? Uh, Eleven, what inspired you to write 10% Happier? Thank you again for your time. Thank you. All right, that's incredibly cute. Um, Thank you for the question. It's a great question. Let me just say, I don't, before I get more granular with you, um, I don't know that I would call myself a minimalist. I didn't even really know what minimalism was. Until shortly after I wrote 10% Happier, um, when I was saying yes to anybody who wanted to interview me, now I'm a little bit more protective of my time. But at that point, there was I got an interview put on my calendar from some some guys called The Minimalists. Um, they didn't actually come to my office, but uh, they sent a camera crew to my office. They were working on a documentary about minimalism. Uh, meaning, you know, living with less, not being so focused on consumerism, et cetera, et cetera. And they wanted to interview me, and I, I was open with the fact that I'm pretty much a maximalist. And they said they didn't care. They wanted to do the interview anyway. And I remember thinking as I was doing this interview, this will never see the light of day. I don't know why I'm doing this, but I did it, and there were fun, interesting questions, and so I answered them. Anyway, a couple of years later, they turned it into a documentary called Minimalism that went on Netflix. And um, I have a few friends who were interviewed in that documentary, including including uh, my friend and former guest on this podcast, Sam Harris. And both Sam and I believe that this is the piece of media. I don't know if Sam still feels this way, but I still feel this way. This is the piece of media I've done that has provoked the most people to stop me on the street. This documentary got onto Netflix. It got sort of prominent placement, like pole position in their queue over the holidays a couple of years ago. And so... It just seems to have been viewed by an incredible number of people, especially young people. So I heard from tons of people about seeing me in this documentary. I think I'm actually the first voice you hear in the documentary, which I assume is why these kids were reaching out to ask me about minimalism. And so I feel the 
I feel compelled to admit from the jump that I'm I don't um, I'm not a, a huge minimalist, but I have subsequently become friends with the minimalists and and have thought a little bit about this stuff. So let me answer your, the questions. First one was how does minimalism affect your life? So being the father of a four year old, um, I there's not a ton of minimalism that goes on in my life. He's a maximalist when it comes to stickers and toys uh, and other uh, stuff in that in that uh, uh, of that genre. So I, I I wouldn't say it has a huge effect on my life, but recent podcast guests and good friend Gretchen Rubin recently wrote a book about decluttering, which is part of minimalism. And she came in and helped me declutter my office, which was massively cluttered. Uh, so she didn't actually just to say um, she didn't actually do the work of the decluttering. She just came in and gave me some overall thoughts about how to do it. And I then did the work um, of sorting out the stuff that I didn't really need or love. And that was just taking up space. And some of it was painful. I actually had, and I thought it was very cool that I had an electronic drum set in my office, but it wasn't set up and I never used it. Sometimes my kid would bang on it for 30 seconds, but other than that, it was just an eyesore. And so I actually got rid of it. Um, gave it away um, and gave away a lot of stuff from my office. And now I will say that when I walk into my office, it feels crisp and light and clean and clear, and it is more conducive to uh, doing focused work. Second question, what's the easiest part of minimalism? I think I, it's some of what I just said, that it's there is an ease that comes from having a physical environment or as as um, as Gretchen called her book, outer order, inner calm. There's an ease, a calm that comes from not having clutter all over the place, or what she calls visual noise. Uh, the third question: What is the hardest part of minimalism? I think it actually goes back to that problem I had with my drum set. It's letting go of things that you're attached to, even if it's irrational, even if you know it'll help you to get the stuff out of the way. We get really attached to stuff, and um, have rethinking that, looking at it that closely can have a, uh, it can be hard, but can be really helpful. Which leads to the next question: Why is minimal, minimalism so important? I think there is a real power in renunciation. You know, jo- Joseph Goldstein, my meditation teacher, talks a lot about how renunciation doesn't have a real positive connotation in the Western world right now. Um, but you, he he says you might want to frame it as kind of non-addiction, not being addicted addicted to stuff. And we spend so much of our time in a consumer culture bombarded by these messages about acquisition and accumulation and not being so enchanted by that. To break that spell is really important because unchecked consumerism – by the way, I'm a capitalist – but unchecked consumerism, thoughtless consumerism can lead to – Financial problems for people, it can lead to a a sense of emptiness that no matter how much you get, you're never fully happy. You know, we are, you know, in in this way, as I like to say, uh, the the pursuit of happiness that's enshrined in America's founding documents. I don't know if this applies in Canada, but it's true here. The pursuit of happiness can become the source of our unhappiness. And of course, unchecked capitalism can also lead to all sorts of environmental degradation and mistreatment of workers. So – uh, and again, I say this as a capitalist, but um, but I think this is why minimalism is such an important thing to think about. Five, uh, here's the fifth question. How does minimalism affect your stress? Um, I'll just go back to – I can keep this one super brief. Just the effect, the effect I feel every day, weeks after I decluttered my office, of walking into my office and 
seeing that it, there isn't that visual noise. And I, I don't have distractions that, you know, create friction for me as I go about my work. Six, how does minimalism affect your family? Well, my wife and I have done a lot of work with Alexander um, in terms to get him to give away and donate his toys. Uh, it's not always a smooth process, but I will say once he gets into it, he gets really into it. And we fill up bags and, and give them away. And so I, I actually that has given me a lot of secondhand pleasure <laughs> to watch him be so interested in giving toys away. He gets that not everybody has as many toys as he does. So giving that stuff away, his clothes, et cetera, et cetera, I think he gets that. Seven, would you consider yourself a minimalist? Why? Um, I would say I'm minimalism curious, but um, I don't know enough to really call myself a minimalist. Um, but a lot of it appeals to me. Eight, why are you interested in minimalism? Just, it, it, you know, seeing the effects that we've already discussed makes me interested. I'm, I'm going to try to move quickly through the rest of these. Nine, does minimalism make you more independent? I don't know. Good question. I don't know. I guess maybe it does uh, disentangle you from from uh, the consumer culture, which, you know, has some good parts to it, but has a lot of uh, uh, parts to it that is kind of wired to make us unhappy, the the message from advertisement is often that you're, you know, you're not good enough. You are not enough unless you buy this product. And, and so not being so enchanted by that can create a kind of healthy independence. Ten, how did you discover minimalism? Well, I answered this. It was really because of that Netflix movie. Uh, Eleven, what inspired you to write 10% Happier? This one's easy for me, which is that I got into meditation. Um, a lot of listeners to the show will know this answer, but I got into meditation and it really had really helped me. It didn't solve all of my problems. That's why I wrote the book and I called it 10% Happier. But it was obvious to me that this is a simple, scientifically validated form of mental exercise that really could help me be more focused, to, you know, stay on task in my creative work and less yanked around by my emotions. And um, my critique of the the popular literature around meditation at the time was that it, it lacked a sense of humor. So I wanted to write a book that included some words that your parents probably don't want you to say and also tells embar- uh, told some embarrassing stories and talked about meditation in a way that would appeal to folks who might otherwise reflectively reject it, reflexively, unreflectively, and reflexively reject it. And so, yeah, that's what inspired me to, to write the book. And and do this podcast and have an app and all this other stuff that I all of a sudden find myself doing. Thank you so much for the question. I really appreciate it. Angela, Aya, and Anu, thank you very much to everybody who listens to this show. Really want to thank again the folks who are part of our podcast insiders group who provide feedback, qualitative feedback every week on the, the work that we're doing here. That has a huge impact on the way we proceed. Uh, I want to thank the producers who work so hard on this show, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston and uh, Ryan Kessler, the boss here at ABC, who's in charge of making sure this podcast gets out into the world. The brilliant Susie Liu is working the boards today. Thank you to her. And I will see you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.